making our way through the Gospel of Mark, where we have made it to chapter 4. Um, I want to warn you today, if you've been at City Church for a couple of years, I preached an entire series on the parable that we're going to be talking about today that was four weeks long. So we got to take four weeks and put it into one message today. So buckle up. I'll try to get through as quickly as possible. But if you want to dive deeper into um, the parable of the soils, then um, the series title was The Story of the Soul. And you can go on our website um, or our app and, and find that series. I think we did it during the um, pandemic. I think I was preaching to an empty audience. Is that such a thing? Empty audience? An uh, empty room um, when I preached the story of the soul. Uh, but we are a Bible preaching, teaching church here at City Church. So uh, bring your Bible. If you do not own one, we will gift you a Bible. We have some out in the, the foyer there that we would love to give you. Um, if you're at City Church for any length of time, you're going to need a Bible because we preach and teach and study from uh, the Bible. So how many of you are planning or have already um, planted thanks, babe, a garden this year? Hands up high. Planting a garden? I need to see those hands. Okay. Ash, look around. See all these hands up? In this garden, how many of you are going to have tomatoes? I see those hands. Okay. I think it was uh, about 60 straight days last summer I ate a BLT for lunch. So some record like that. Um, cantaloupes, anyone? Okay. Those two of my go-to garden items. Tomatoes and cantaloupes. Just saying if you want to bless your pastor and show your love. Show your love for your pastor's wife. And uh, we love those type of gifts. So um, gardens, tomatoes, cantaloupes. Um, Ash and I have had kind of a, um, I don't know, tumultuous relationship with gardens in our years of marriage. We've had a couple of successful gardens. We've had some non-successful gardens to the point that we... Uh, depend on you to bring us garden items or go to the farmer's market and stop trying to go through the patience of raising our own tomatoes and cantaloupes. I have experienced my wife shedding tears, actual literal tears, both from the joy of fruit bearing, like her very first tomato that she ever grew. I came out, she was holding it in her hands with the little bright look that she gets on her face and tears were streaming down her cheeks. And then I've experienced her shedding tears over spending a lot of time and energy into a garden and all the tomatoes come out with a rotten spot or the cantaloupes rot, rot before we can um, enjoy them. And so I just, that full range of emotions at some point, I was like, it's not worth it. Let's spend the money or entice people and tell them how much we love them for them to give us garden vegetables. Uh, my grandfather, um, Pat Pud, Pat, my papaw, um, grew a big garden every year, and uh, when I lived with him for a couple summers and worked with him, um, he would, our routine was at lunch, we'd come home, he would always have lots of tomatoes and big cantaloupes, and uh, we would eat a tomato on whatever type of sandwich we'd eating, and then we'd cut a cantaloupe in half and take a spoon, and he would eat half, and I would eat half, and then if we were hungry, we'd do it again, just spoon out the cantaloupe meat and eat it. One of my favorite memories and funniest stories about my papa, who was a very comical um, guy is he would always try to raise some kind of strange melon every once in a while or some odd fruit no one had ever heard of and he raised this some kind of weird melon that came up in his garden I still don't know the name of it or what it was supposed to be and it was ugly and um, it was but he brought that thing in he's like I'm going to taste this thing 
And he took a big bite out of one side of that fruit, and he was like, this is terrible. It's the worst thing I've ever eaten. And then he proceeded to flip it over to the opposite side and take another big bite out of the opposite side, as if the opposite side would taste different than the first side. I'll never forget that moment. Say, Papa, what did you, if that first bite was so terrible, you thought the opposite side was going to be delicious? So that's kind of my garden experience, right? Today, we are going through a story that Jesus tells, a parable about a farmer and seed and four types of soil. And these topics would have been very familiar in the agrarian culture in which Jesus was telling this story. It's a parable. Parables were the preferred teaching method of Jesus. There's over 60 parables in the four Gospels. Uh, the word parable itself in the original language means it's something that's placed along something else for the purpose of clarity, of clarification. For Jesus, most often, uh, parables were stories that had to do with the kingdom of God. Most of his parables began with the kingdom of God is like, and then he would tell uh, some story. Um, if you grew up in church, kind of the Sunday school definition that we heard of parables is that was an earthly story with a heavenly meaning, and that's kind of a catchy way to remember it. But when you study the parables, you realize that these stories are a lot more complex than that kind of Sunday school definition that we tend to give them. They're often very confusing to the hearers, especially for those outside of the circle of followers, and they are intended primarily for the insiders, for followers of Jesus. And Mark sandwiches his tale around this very idea that we'll see in the middle of this parable. There's, uh, I've told you that throughout Mark's gospel. He kind of uses this sandwich approach where he'll start a story and then stop and talk about something else and then finish the story. Well, in the middle of this, um, he kind of explains the purpose of parables, and we'll get to that in a few, a few moments. Um, this very well-known parable is the very first recorded parable in all the gospels. It's the most fully explained parable uh, by Jesus in Mark's gospel. And we've said that Mark is more than likely the very earliest gospel that was written. And so, longest parable, most explained parable in the earliest gospel. Uh, that means that this parable is important. It's important for us to pay attention to. Matter of fact, 13 times in this section, Jesus instructs us to listen, to pay attention. Pay attention. If you're a parent, you know that those times you have to get your child's attention and say, I need you to really listen to me. I need you to, and we'll use that language, won't we? Pay attention. This morning, Levi became a sermon illustration. Before church, trying to get ready. Um, he's in the other room doing something. He got up early this morning. His mom kind of snapped at him, if I'm being honest, uh, because he got up early. Just saying, did you? It was nice. Anyways, uh, so he's like sitting in the living room, and we're starting to get ready. I'm like, Levi. Same response, dead silence. Levi, dead silence. Like, you just called my name. I hear you back there. I heard a Levi. My son's name's Levi. Is there a Levi back here? No. <laughs> so um, multiple times. He's called me at the same volume level, right? My volume level's a little higher than his. So at some point, I'm walking in the room saying, Levi, are you what? Are you hearing Dad? Are you hearing me call your name? I need you to pay attention when Dad calls your name and re what? respond when I call your name. I want to know that you heard me. So in this parable, Jesus is getting our attention. Pay attention. 
listen, heed what I have to say to you in this story. His instruction, his in, instruction is important because, here it is, we tend, we've heard this story, we tend to tune out what is familiar to us. We tend to tune it out. So we have to be intentional to focus on what Jesus is teaching. Here's the story that Jesus tells at the beginning of Mark chapter 4. Again, he began to teach beside the sea. We've seen this, we've seen this scene a couple of times in Mark's gospel now where this giant crowd gathers and Jesus is by the sea in Galilee. A very large crowd gathered about him so that he got into a boat. This is the second time we've seen this kind of portable pulpit boat. He got into a boat and he sat in it on the sea. I don't have time to chase that, but um, this language that Mark uses here is an Old Testament reference to a psalm that says that God was upon the sea. And so just this reference here is the idea that Jesus is the Son of God, that He is God teaching from the sea. We'll see that more in a couple of chapters when He calms the sea. The whole crowd was beside the sea on the land, and He was teaching them many things in parables. And in His teaching, He said to them, here it is, listen, listen. Exclamation point, probably in your English translation. Listen, behold, a sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seed fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured it. Other seed fell on rocky ground, where it did not have much soil, and immediately it sprang up, since it had no depth of soil. And when the sun rose, it was scorched. And since it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no grain. Other seeds fell into good soil and produced grain, growing up and increasing and yielding 30-fold, 60-fold, 100-fold. And he said, here we are again, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. So Jesus tells this story about this farmer who goes out to sow seed. Uh, Palestinian farmers would wear uh, a seed sack that was filled with seeds, and they would spread the seed, and then they would come back, kind of the opposite of our approach, they would come back and they would plow the ground after the spreading of the seed to bury the seed. So for that reason, the seed was, was sown liberally and abundantly, um, in abundance, just kind of this reckless sowing of the seed uh, with reckless abandon. And then Jesus says in the story that the seed falls on four types of soil. First, there's a beaten down path, again, think in your mind of fields, Think about between those fields, there would be paths where people would walk. The fields were divided by these paths. And so as the farmer is sowing the seed, some of the seed would fall on this beaten down path where it was devoured by these lurking birds waiting for their opportunity to jump on the seed. Some fell in the rocky soil where it quickly sprouts, but then it dies abruptly due to this lack of depth. There's no roots, no depth to the seed. Some seed falls in the thorns, the weeds where it's choked out by the thistles and the briars. And then obviously some of the seed falls on this fertile, healthy soil. It takes root, it springs to life, and then the Scripture says it produces this abundant crop. Now there's two things in the story that are constant. They're stable. Um, one, the seed. When the seed plants, if it's given a chance, it takes root and it springs to life. That's what the seed does. The other constant in the story is the sower. Now, the sower sows the seed in abundance. He just sows the seed in abundance. Uh, the, what, is, what is not constant in the story is the soil. It's the variable here. The story 
in the story, the soil represents our souls. It represents our hearts, our souls, which is why the instruction for Jesus to pay careful attention is so important because we're talking about soul level stuff. Pay attention. Take heed. The receptive, attentive soul receives the seed which takes root deep inside and produces abundant life. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what Jesus is teaching. You know what that implies? It implies that you can be listening but not hearing. You can hear words but not be really absorbing what Jesus is teaching. You can read the parable of the soils like we've done many times. You've been in church for any length of time and not really be connecting to what Jesus is teaching. So it's important for us to stop, pay attention, and listen to what Jesus has to say. Later, Jesus is alone with his followers, and they ask him about the meaning of this parable. And Jesus offers this short and somewhat confusing and very pointed lesson on the purpose of parables. Again, so here's kind of our meat of the sandwich in between this story, verse 10. And when he was alone, those around him with the twelve asked him about the parables. And he said to them, To you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. But for those outside, everything is in parables, so that they may, and he quotes Isaiah here, Isaiah 6, that they may indeed see, but not perceive. They may indeed hear, but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. So Jesus says, I'm directing my parable to two different audiences. One, there's insiders, and two, there's outsiders. And the purpose of these parables, according to Jesus, is twofold. It is to reveal the truth to the insiders and to conceal the truth from the outsiders. Now, let's break that down. First, Jesus says in verse 11 that the purpose of the parables is to reveal to you, right? And that's the language he uses in verse 11. He says, to you. He starts it. To you has been given. There's a point of emphasis here in the original language. To you, to these insiders, to those who are asking, this truth is for you to hear, for insiders. Those who have the ears to hear, this truth is for you. And Jesus says this truth has been given. It is a God-gifted truth. In other words, to the natural mind, right, the sinful, broken mind of humanity, the truth of understanding the gospel can't be perceived outside of the work of God. It has been given to you, he says. And then he uses this weird language, the secrets of the kingdom. What is that about? Well, this God-given kingdom truth about who Jesus is, and we've been talking about this every week, the type of kingdom that he is initiating. That the kingdom represents the rule and reign of God. Wherever God is ruling and reigning is the kingdom of God. And so Jesus has been preaching this message of the kingdom of God, God's rule and reign, and been inviting people to repent and believe, to turn from their way and to turn and live under the rule and reign of God. And so the idea of the secret of the kingdom is that this kingdom is not what people were expecting. It is a kingdom that's shaped by a cross, right? That Jesus is headed 
ultimately to, to suffer and die. That's not what they were anticipating. They were expecting to overthrow the Romans, to set up an earthly kingdom, to rule and reign. And so Jesus uses this language of like, this is not the kingdom you're expecting. It is a cross-shaped kingdom that I will suffer and die. And the parable reveals this to the disciples to whom he's teaching and directing. But Jesus also says there's a part of this parable that conceals the truth, right? That you can see but not perceive. You can hear but not understand. And he quotes, interesting, Isaiah 6 here, 9 through 10. The context of Isaiah 6 has to do with the hardening of our hearts through unbelief. So Jesus is not necessarily talking about some type of cryptic secret, like like you're going to you know, go to an escape room, and if you figure out the clues in the escape room, then you can get out of the escape room. Am I the only one in here that's done an escape room? you got, like, puzzled looks on your faces. Like, you know what I'm talking about, though, right? You go to these places, they give you clues, you try to work your way out. That's not the secrets of the kingdom he's talking about here. It's not some cryptic puzzle that you have to try to figure out here. The idea is, is that our natural hearts are hardened by unbelief. And as a result of that, there is spiritual blindness. There is spiritual deafness that happens as a result of unbelief. And so it's not necessarily the purpose as much as it is the result of unbelief. So very important here. The same gospel, the same seed that is sown, the same message of the kingdom, it both compels people toward the gospel and it repels people away from the gospel. This is the scandal of the gospel. The good news is received by some and it is turned away by others, right? And so the gospel message of the kingdom, it draws and it divides. It reveals, it conceals. Some receive, others ignore. Exact same thing that happened with Jesus when he walked the earth. All right? There were some who had ears to hear. They were drawn by the Holy Spirit and they followed Christ. There were others who were blinded and deafened by their unbelief. And they turned away from Jesus. As a matter of fact, they ultimately crucified Christ. So the purpose to reveal, to conceal. And there's this built-in warning to each one of us. That you can listen and not hear. See and not perceive. And what differentiates the two is how I respond to the message of the cross. What is the condition of my soul? The receptive soul, the good soil, it yields abundant life, Jesus says. Matter of fact, we'll get to it in a minute. Verse 20, Jesus says it keeps on hearing. Keeps on hearing. So the point of the parable, as revealed in this in-between, receive the gospel. Receive the gospel, the kingdom message. And like the good soil, cultivate your soul so that you are receptive to the seed. And then Jesus breaks down. He unpacks these various responses to his kingdom message. We've already seen each of these responses in Mark's gospel. Jesus explains it in unpacking the parable for us. So uh, we'll start verse 13. Here's the parable. It's kind of unpacked by Jesus. He said to them, do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? The sower sows the word. So we start out with the sower. The context here indicates this is Jesus Uh, The seed here is the gospel, this message that Jesus is proclaiming, the gospel message, the invasion of God's kingdom on earth, his rule and reign. And then the soil is our souls, our inner souls. And then he starts breaking down each of these souls, each one of these soils. So verse 15, 
These are the ones along the path. The word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately, remember immediately is a trigger word in, in Mark, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. And so Jesus first talks about the hardened soul. The hardened soul in the form of the soil. So what Jesus says is that some seeds fall on the pathway. And the pathway is beaten down. It's beaten down by farmers. It's been beaten down by travelers, by livestock, by carts, by the desert sun that would just bake this hardened soil. So this pathway is very hard. It's very dry. The seed does not have a chance on the pathway. No chance at all. And souls tend to get that way, don't they? Hearing but not understanding. Seeing but not perceived. Because unbelief hardens the soul. And we are warned against allowing our souls to become hard. Now, when you look at this concept of hardening in Scripture, we discover that those who continue in sin, uh, those who continue in apathy, often have a hard-heartedness toward the gospel. Now, there's language even in the New Testament Jesus uses where he says that you are stubborn and hard-hearted, that you are stubborn and hard-hearted. The Scriptures even on occasion speak of God hardening hearts of unbelief. That there's these occasions in Scripture where God takes a step back, where His Spirit stops striving with us. That Here's what that means. He allows unbelief to run its course. He allows us to have our way. He allows us to pursue our own path. That God will take a step back and allow the heart to be hardened through unbelief. So in this parable, the seed, this gospel seed, it's snatched up by the enemy and his minions, right? That the birds are this kind of unwelcome nemesis to the farmer. Part of the reason we gave up on planting a garden were the unwelcome nemesis that were waiting to destroy our garden. One occasion, what generated tears from my precious wife over the garden was this dreaded beast, the tomato worm. Right? You look at this thing, it's got horns, it's nasty, and it will just eat through your tomato plant instantaneously. Um, kind of our nemesis right now, what we have been able to kind of keep alive at our house are these crepe myrtle trees, which are beautiful when they bloom, but guess what? They have their nemesis. So we go out one day, a couple of years ago, and all of our crepe myrtles are completely consumed. They're eaten by these little green, right, beetle bugs, and then everybody in the church that knows this kind of stuff is like, spray this, put this on it. Eliminate it this way, hang a bag from your tree, do a dance around the tree, beat it with a stick. I mean, there's all kinds of stuff like to get rid of these things. Last year, some of you remember, right? I almost, almost relapsed into a, a, a stage of unbelief in my life over these, okay, to say the stupid here, these stupid army worms, right? Just came into my yard. I'm like, man, my grass seems a little dry. That, that's, that's my perspective. The, it must not have rained in a while. The grass is dry. Like, it's so weird how it's dry. It's like got a line where it's dry and not dry. And then the next day, the, the line went further and further. Like, man, it's so weird. I mean, true green must have messed up my yard somehow, right? Well, then I learned it's the nemesis, right? It's the army worm. And then my man, Jason Puckett, came and eliminated my army worm. So if you're looking for someone to eliminate your army worms, cheap plug. Jason can take care of your army worms for you. Or what he really wants me to say is, I can treat your yard before they come and take care of it. 
So in this story, the birds are waiting eagerly to snatch up the fallen seed. And Jesus warns that Satan is waiting to consume the seed of the hardened soul. And Satan uses any means necessary to snatch up what has been sown. Let me mention just two that are common tactics of Satan to harden the soul. One of them is hurt. Few life experiences callous and harden a soul like hurt. Um, People who have been hurt tend to form a protective shell around their soul in order to avoid getting hurt again. And hurt souls tend to become cynical and bitter and unforgiving and suspicious, unable to trust, hostile, and even abusive. Because souls hardened by hurt or disappointment often seem impenetrable. And as a result, you've heard me say it here before, hurt people tend to hurt people because they've been hurt and their souls grow hard. Listen to me. Look at me. If you've been hurt, hear me. Pay attention. If you've been hurt, if you have been hurt by someone, some organization, some church, some child, some ex-spouse, some friend, some parent, if you've been hurt, hear me closely. Jesus loves you. He will not hurt you. Listen, whatever happened to you, it's not okay. It's not okay. It's not fair. It's not right. It's not justified. It's not okay. But what I want you to do, I want to invite you to embrace the unconditional love of a God who sent His own Son to redeem and rescue and heal hurting people. Do not allow hurt to harden you. Here's what the Scripture teaches. Underneath the hurt, you know what's underneath the hurt most often? Fear. A rightful fear because it is the fear of being hurt again. It's the fear of being rejected. It's the fear of reliving that pain. I read from 1 John earlier. Here's what John says in chapter 4. Perfect love casts out fear. Perfect love casts out fear. Here's what that means for you. Jesus will not hurt you. He will not hurt you. You do not have to be afraid of His love. You do not have to be afraid of being accepted by Him. He loves you perfectly. Let's talk about a second one that hardens our hearts. Apathy. Jesus seems to be making the point in this parable that the seed falls on the pathway where the people and the animals are coming and going. If you read the Gospel writer Luke's version of the story, he says that the seed is trampled underfoot. In other words, it's not even noticed in the coming and going of life. It is often in the coming and going of everyday life where we tend to grow apathetic to the good news of the Gospel. Most hardened souls, listen, most hardened souls are not defiant atheists that are shaking their fist in the face of God, challenging Him. That's not most hardened souls. Most hardened souls are simply people who are living life apathetic toward God. Just apathetic toward God. 
the apathetic are living life with little or no interest in spiritual things. Life is just simply overcrowded with other stuff. If it's sports or TV or friends or hobbies or work or the news, just the mundane, everyday areas of life where I don't see a need for God. And my soul grows apathetic, hardened toward God. Apathy hardens the soul, and the seed is trampled in the coming and going of life. Hardened souls are usually just too busy to stop and listen, to hear. But here's the gospel. God continues to sow the seed. The sower sows the seed in abundance. Let's talk about the second soul here, verses 16 and 17. And these are the ones sown on rocky ground, the ones who when they hear the word immediately receive it with joy. They have no root in themselves. They endure for a while. Then when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. This is the shallow soul. Some seed fell on rocky soil, which was just this thin layer of topsoil with this solid rock underneath. And so the seed cannot take root. So when the sun comes out, life just withers away. The soil is too shallow. It is superficial. Here's the idea. For the seed to take root and spring to life, it requires depth. Not just excitement, not just information, not just desire, not just talent. Notice the explanation of Jesus here. He said, first, the seed receives it with joy, right? There's this emotional reaction to the gospel message. Um, I like to call it kind of the modern-day um, Facebook-like syndrome, right? Like, yay, I can click on a button and give the thumbs up. That's kind of the, yay, I'm excited, I like what I see here. And so they receive it initially with joy. But the Scriptures say in the story, it has no root. There's no substance. It's not genuine. And the lack of genuineness is evidenced over time and circumstances. It endures for a while. The evidence is temporary as long as the joy is present. But when the joy disappears, right, the seed disappears. Here's what that means. Hardships occur. Hear the gospel message today. Suffering will come. It will come to you. A hard time is coming. I want to tell you, if you're listening to any preacher, pastor, or whatever that tells you the opposite, they're not telling you the truth of the gospel. Hardship will come. Suffering will come. Difficulties will come. Pain, doubt, trials, struggles, hurt, these are the realities of life. And in our story, these hardships occur. Jesus uses the language on account of the word. If you were here last week, that's the scandal of the gospel. It draws and compels. Remember last week, John the baptizer, the language that Jesus used, blessed is the one who does not, what, stumble, who does not fall away on account of me, Jesus says. Blessed is the one whose eyes are not just focused on the here and now and what's happening in the here and now. They immediately fall away. They are scandalized. There is no depth. The shallow soil. So there's a warning here. There's a warning against superficial adherence with no genuine depth. Here's what that looks like in real life. I need God until I don't. 
I need him because this is going on in my life. The message sounds good, right? Thumbs up, like, cheerleader syndrome, hip, hip, hooray. I need him until I don't. And when the suffering comes, the hurt comes, the betrayal comes, the ordinary comes, there's no depth. John, in his short epistle, described it as they were never really one of us. Looked like us, sang the songs, sat in the seats, but they were never really one of us. And yet, the good news of the gospel is sower seed, right? The sower liberally sows the seed, right? Shallow soil, right? Hardened soil. The sower continues to sow the seed. Let's talk about the last one, the crowded soul. This is 18, 19, as Jesus continues to break down the parable. And others are the ones sown among thorns. They are those who hear the word, and then look at 19, breaks it down for us, but the cares of the world, the deceitfulness of riches, and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word, and it proves un. Fruitful, the crowded soul. Some seed fell among thorns, weeds, which choke the life from the plant. This is the unstoppable power of the weed. Did anyone yesterday do yard work for kind of the first time this year? We did, which means all of our kind of outside stuff is just filled with weeds, right? So Ash and I have two different approaches to the weed problem. She likes, I don't know if she likes, she chooses the approach of pulling the weeds. I choose the approach of poisoning the weeds. How many pull weeds people do we have in the room? Okay. Most females. How many poison the weeds? Look at all that, right? Poison those suckers. And I love how southern men are so proud of the power and the potency of their poison like how many conversations have i got involved in and somebody's like look i got this stuff it's not even on the market it's illegal in 12 states right i'm like well i I went to lowe's and bought roundup they're like roundup i put roundup in my coffee what are you talking about like the stuff i got on the black market of poison was used to defeat the Nazis, right? Like, it's like we are proud of our potency of our poison. I want to spray here and kill stuff in another state. That's the way some men think about their poison. In the meantime, their wives are like, I just want one flower, please, without killing every single thing at the house. Choking out the life, the power of the weed. No matter what you do, Those suckers are coming back, the power of the weed. And Jesus talks about it in the story. And he uses this language, choke out. He does not say knock out. Knock out happens instantaneously. Choke out takes time. It's a slower process. The air is cut off, and part of the danger here is is that we can be left spiritually unconscious without even realizing it. It happens gradually. And we, we would be good to pay attention to the three 
life-choking threats that Jesus talks about here. He says the cares of this world. We are to be attentive to the cares of a world, not just this present earthly one. We are exiles, Peter says, in this world. Our eyes are to be centered on a world that is to come and not be distracted by this present age. And it is easy for all of us to become obsessed with the here and now and lose sight of the eternal. Paul uses this language in 2 Timothy chapter 2, and he compares it to a soldier who is entangled in civilian pursuits, that our eyes are not on the bigger picture. And the cares of this world will entangle and choke the life from us. We become so consumed with the created that we lose sight of the Creator. And we end up with what John Piper calls the, a wasted life, a life that is consumed with the temporary. The second life-threatening thorn here is the deceitfulness of riches, the pursuit of stuff, right? To obtain more, obtain bigger, obtain better. The deceitfulness of riches is the belief, the behavior, that something other than Jesus, something other than God, stuff, money, wealth, whatever it is, the deception that any of that outside of Christ can fulfill me, that it can satisfy me, that it can bring me meaning and happiness. And Jesus is very intentional with the word he uses here, the deceitfulness of it. He says it's an illusion. It's, an, it's a lie that the pursuit of security or meaning through stuff will leave you wanting. It will leave you unsatisfied. It will leave you searching. It will deceive your soul, both in times of abundance and in times of want. It's deceptive in both categories. When you have a lot and when you have a little, it will deceive you. That riches make promises that they cannot keep. That's why when we get home from having the vacation of a lifetime, we need a vacation to recover from our vacation. You know why? Because vacations at the end of the day is not what's going to bring you satisfaction and fulfillment. They're awesome. We love them. We are intentional with ours and spending family time together. But almost at the end of every vacation, I'm like you. I get home, and I'm like, man, I'm exhausted, and my energy, my emotion is depleted. You know why? Because it's not in the things of this world that I can find true meaning, satisfaction, and fulfillment. They are deceptive. And our clickbait culture tells us that riches are the answer to our problems. And we are duped into believing that our value and our identity are found in what we do or do not have. Riches promise fulfillment that can only be found in Christ. They lie to you. So cultivate your soul. Cultivate your soul by asking these kind of soil testing questions. You ever had your soil sent off and tested Tried all that with our garden, like, send it to Auburn. Maybe that was our mistake. Send it to Auburn. Some of y'all totally missed that. Send it to Alabama, whichever, whichever cup of tea you want here. Send the soil off and have it tested and brought back, and they'll tell you what to do. Some of our soil testing questions when it comes to the deceitfulness of riches. Do I think I would be happier if I had more? Well, if I just made this amount of money, everything would be okay? These are testing questions. Do I believe I am more deserving than those who have, ready, less than me or more than me? 
Do I feel like I'm somehow more deserving than this person who has less or this person who has more? Am I managing well what God has given me and entrusted to me? Here's an awesome one. Am I growing in my generosity? Because you know what generosity is? It is the antidote to greed and consumerism. If I want to overcome greed in my life and consumerism, I learn to give my stuff away because my heart's not attached to it. Soil testing questions, the deceitfulness of riches. Obtaining stuff is not the goal of life. And riches are not where our security is found. Jesus put it pretty blunt, didn't he? You cannot serve two masters. One of those masters is life, the source of life. And the other will choke the life out of you. God continues to sow the seed. What about the desire for other things? Pivotal word there, desire. John Ortberg says desire is the Velcro of the soul. That the busy soul gets attached to wrong things because the soul is sticky. I love that. The Velcro of the soul. The inclusion of this phrase, other things, refers to anything that we prioritize over God in our lives. We call it here at City Church spiritual idolatry. Our soul is what connects us to the Creator. And when we Velcro our souls to anything other than God, we are disconnecting from the source of life. Jesus said in Matthew 6, seek me, seek Him, and other things will be added to your life. What prevents the soul from taking root in the thorny soil is the soul clutter, living life focused on all the minutiae and being duped by the insatiable pursuit of more or strangled by the fleeting pursuit of anything other than God. We so easily mistake clutter for living, so preoccupied by the external and superficial that we choke to death internally without even realizing it. Hardened soil, shallow soil, crowded soil, all three have depth issues, don't they? The seed never plants, never springs to life, never grows, and still the sower sows the seed in abundance because there is a fourth type of soil in the story. And that's verse 20. We'll look at this and we're done. But those that were sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word, accept it, and bear fruit 30-fold and 60-fold and 100-fold. Like that's what I'm talking about, right? You put one tomato plant in the ground and it produces hundreds of tomatoes, right? That's what we're talking about, the good soil, the receptive soul. The seed is planted at the deepest level. We have ears to hear. We are seeing. What do we hear and see? We hear and see, I need Jesus, right? I need him. The seed springs to life, Jesus says. In other words, we embrace this gospel message, this kingdom message, and it transforms us from the inside out. Jesus says it perseveres. It does not die. It is not choked out by all the things we just talked about. And then it bears fruit, abundant life, abundant fruit. And the evidence is life in Christ. I told you a minute ago, it's a continual word here that we continue to hear. We keep on hearing. We continue to lean into who He is. 
that God is plowing, He is cultivating, He is sowing, and He is working in the hardened, shallow, and cluttered soil. And the good news is, this seed, this powerful seed, this gospel seed will spring to life when it is planted in receptive soil. Will we have eyes to see and ears to hear? And when the gospel is deeply planted and released into our souls, life happens. Abundant, reproducing, eternal life happens. So, let's invite God to the deepest part of who we are, into our soul. Let's invite God to do His work where it matters most in the depth of our soul. The foundation of all of Old Testament Judaism is the Lord our God is one. Love Him with everything that you are, with all of your heart, all of your mind, and all of your what? Soul. Invite Him into the deepest parts of who we are. Let's ask Him to allow our souls to be sensitive Sensitive to his voice, not hardened by our own hurt or the comings and goings of life that causes our souls to grow apathetic. Let's invite him and ask him to help us stay fixated on Jesus, like rooted and established in who Jesus is and not distracted by the superficial, shallow, temporary, fleeting pleasures of this life. Let's ask him to keep us centered on the eternal and not choked out by the cares of this world, the deceitfulness of riches or the idolatry of other things is constantly vying for our devotion. Let's ask the great sower to cultivate our souls, to open our spiritual ears so that we might hear, to open our spiritual eyes so that we might see, and to implant deeply and grow exponentially the eternal seed of the gospel in our souls so that we might experience eternal, abundant life in Him, life-giving life. Remember, hearing, receiving, and bearing fruit These are the marks in the story of the insider. These are the marks of the follower of Jesus, one who has embraced the cross-shaped life. Here's how we say it at City Church. Every day when I get up, I want to preach the gospel again to myself today. I want to preach the gospel again and again and again to myself every day. I want to preach the gospel to myself that he is enough, that what he has done is enough, that I am safe in him, that I am secure in him, that I am defined by him and not all these things. I want to preach the gospel to myself every day because doing that is what plants the seed deep into my heart. It's what allows the gospel to take root deeply and more deeply and more deeply into my heart, into my soul, so that from that seed springs forth abundant life, that I am able to live a life fulfilled and satisfied and complete and whole in Christ as He does His work in me each and every day. And the seed grows more deep, more fresh, more new every day, leaning into the good news of the gospel He who has ears, 
let him 